There we go. Last time yeah. I was losing it because I was trying too hard to impress our guest, Mike Thorne, I guess. Yeah, you were honking like a goose. I just did some crazy rhyming there. Mm-hmm. I was trying to impress our guest, Mike Thorne, I guess. Fucking Lin-Manuel Miranda over here. <laughs> yeah. You're like a Dwayne Johnson and Moana. <laughs> wow. The little rock Dwayne himself. Johnson. Yeah, The Young Rock. I've been meaning to check that show out um, (laughs) because it sounds literally insane. I didn't realize. So you were telling me about it, which, by the way, welcome to Hotbox the Cinema. If it wasn't already obvious, uh, I'm Nathan. I'm Seth. Get that out of the way. Get the business out of the way. Um, But The Young Rock. So you were like we were texting about it the other day. Um, cause obviously, you know, we've both been interested in Dwayne Johnson over the years. Yeah, as a, I've, I've got his tequila in my kitchen. I was bullied by him on Twitter. You know, it's, it's, we're fans, <laughs> yeah. in a, in, you know, we are often frustrated by some of his creative decisions and particularly how he affected the fast and furious franchise, I think. But, uh, yeah. And how he's probably going to run as a Republican one day. Yeah. Which brings me to the young rock because you were texting me and you were like, I, I think I I kind of misread what you said because you were saying that it's like, you know, him telling stories of his childhood while he's like preparing to run for president. Yeah, he might actually already be president in the show. Someone's told me that. I I don't I think he's I think he's just running from the what I read, but I miss I interpreted that as like you were saying that like metaphorically this show was like him sort of being like this is my life like and you're like, and I'm really introducing myself so you can like fully get to know me as a person, as a figure and come to respect me, the American public. But it's literally it's, him. No, it's yeah, it's literally him yeah. like being interviewed by like Randall Park playing himself, except in this future, he's become a news anchor. And he's like yeah. telling his stories about his childhood while he's preparing to run for president, which is like such a psyop since this yeah. man that there, there've been these presidential rumors swirling around this man for a while. I mean, people said, that about zuckerberg and that's obviously yeah not worked out i mean but, uh, you know in terms of republican presidents we've had a cowboy actor we've had a reality star where is next but the the rest yeah. of the ring yeah it just really reminds me of there's there was this newsweek cover from like 2000 the 2000 election um, that I uncovered last year after rewatching Bullworth because I had learned after rewatching Bullworth that B- Warren Beatty was like legitimately a, a perennial sort of election, like democratic kind of contender. Like, I don't know if he ever really took it that seriously himself, but people just, you know, cause he's such a sort of like openly kind of much more radically and leftist political guy than many Hollywood actors. I mean, he made reds obviously and Bullworth goes without mm-hmm. saying, but people just kept floating him as like, Oh, like he's, you know, he's got the right ideas. He's such a suave, charming guy. Like he should run. And there's this newsweek cover. That's like the new guys or something. And it's like Jesse Ventura flanked by Warren Beatty and Donald Trump, like not a photo shoot altogether. That would be amazing. But like, they're just their images, you know, edited yeah. together. And I mean, obviously, you know, Ventura had, had his career and this, he's still on the money about a lot of things when it comes to foreign policy and American imperialism, he gets it. He knows what's up. I'd vote for him for president TBH. Uh, and obviously Trump was president. Uh, so it's like, you know, Warren Beatty, who knows, probably not, but, um, 
the rock. I don't know. Entirely possible. Yeah. And then wouldn't it be so weird then if he did become president and then had this like Yankee doodle dandy type show about how he was going to run for president a decade ago? Mm hmm. Weird. Insanity. Just lunacy. Uh, but I guess it's kind of what happened with Trump in a way. Like people were just he was just kind of running and people were talking about how he was maybe going to run and kind of run for like decades. And then it just that just ended, it ended up happening because <laughs> mm -hmm. people just willed it into, you know, it became the self. Well, once it prophecy. like really happened, people were just like, that's not really something to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, media. Very discredited. Yeah, true, true. What have you been? Uh, you've been watching anything lately? Any games? You know, I've been, I feel like honestly, actually a lot of what I've been watching has been either like work for just general work, you know, stuff mm -hmm. I'm reviewing or um, watching to keep the lights on. Exactly. Or like stuff that I've just kind of like assigned myself for the podcast and for uh, <coughs> future episodes. Um mm -hmm. But I did say, I will say there was something that we talked about recently, uh, which kind of came up again for me because, you know, we had talked several weeks ago on our first person episode, you were talking about Kaveh Zahedi. Obviously, you just had that new podcast that's coming out. Really great podcast. Um, both yeah. enjoyers of his work. Check out the extended clip interview if you haven't. I recommend. Yeah. Well, there's that, but also his, he has an original podcast that I realized I didn't name on the last episode, which is, I think it's 365 stories. I have to tell you before I die. Yeah. 365 stories. I have to tell you before we both die, or like, I want to tell you oh. before we both die or something. It's a, some variation on that. Um, yeah. but yeah, you know, just a couple of minutes of store of story time a day. Um, yeah. So I was just, you know, I'd been listening to that. And so I was like wanting to f catch up with some of his movies that I hadn't seen yet. So I watched, uh, among others, I watched The Sheik and I, which is about how he was like hired to make an original film uh, for the like biennial at this art museum in one of the emirates of the uh, titular emirate of the United Arab Emirates. And... um He's, you know, trying to find out more about this place that he doesn't really know a lot about. He goes there. He's trying to make this film. And obviously, if you know Kabe's work, he likes to push buttons. And he finds out that there's kind of a lot of censorship and restriction and that this country is basically privately owned by this sheik. That this emirate is like, you know, all the laws are kind of dictated by him. And Kabe goes there and he also sort of finds that there's this whole kind of like there's this big racism problem where you have all of these men who are these contract did like freelance laborers basically who come from India and they're not allowed to become citizens or permanent residents really you know they have this like essentially sort of like not entirely legal kind of status and their families aren't allowed to come so they're just totally isolated and he meets one of these guys he's like the driver his driver while he's there. And so he's trying to make him, you know, he's trying to kind of question that stuff in the movie and just to sort of immediately starts butting up his head up against all these walls and, and restrictions and stuff. And, um, and it's obviously sort of a touchy sort of, uh, movie, um, in some ways because, you know, he's coming up against, uh, a, a kind of very sort of rigid patriarchal Islamic culture. And, you know, that's kind of difficult thing to get into, especially being an American and, 
he's, uh, you know, of a Iranian extraction, but is from the States. And so, you know, has this kind of outsider perspective and is in that perspective is not entirely welcome or, or, you know, wanting to be listened to there. So anyways, obviously one of the things, you know, there's a lot of, uh, kind of rules around the depiction not just of the prophet Muhammad in Islam, but of just like the human form in general, like just sort of someone actually puts it kind of really beautifully in the movie. I think Kaveh is like talking to someone like about why this exists in Islam. And he says basically like everything that's been created has already been created by God. Like it's not our job to recreate it. So like recreating reality or creating fiction is kind of like, you know, not what you're supposed to do because you're not God. And so and Kaveh is like somebody who really questions the boundaries of sort of fiction and nonfiction. So that's, I think, sort of an area of interest for him. And he talked about he, he mentioned something that it's not a movie that I've seen, but I just wanted to kind of bring it up as sort of like a footnote for our first person episode, because I thought it was a super, super interesting example of first person perspective in cinema that I hadn't come upon previously. Um, and it's this movie from, I believe, 19... 76 or seven, um, called Muhammad, the, uh, the messenger of God or the message. Um, and it was, uh, it's, you know, this like big sweeping international co-production with like Anthony Quinn, among other actors, it was partially funded by Muammar Gaddafi, which is really fascinating. And I kind of want to check it out just for that reason alone. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's this movie about Muhammad, but you can't depict Muhammad and, and, um, so how do you get around that? And the way the movie does that is through first person. It literally makes you Muhammad. So all of the scenes and shots like of Muhammad are from his perspective. So you're, you become the prophet, you become the messenger of God. It's kind of crazy. I mean, yeah. in, in one way that does seem like it might be taken as blasphemous, but on the other hand, it's like kind of weirdly moving or like, I don't know, like just, it's just like, I don't know. I just feel like that's something like, I don't know if like a Christian filmmaker would do that, you know, like putting you in yeah. the perspective of Jesus. Like, I feel like people would be kind of like, no, he's like different than us. Like, you know, but in some way it's like, this says like, you know, Muhammad is, you know, he's, he is like a prophet, but he's still kind of a guy because you can be in his perspective. Um, so I thought that was kind of fascinating. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned this and about what the Christian version of this would be, because there's a game that is a first person game where you play as Jesus Christ. And it's called I Am Jesus Christ. Oh. Yeah. Oh like, my god. It's on you can only like wishlist it. It's not out yet. It's supposed to come out this year, apparently. I'm on their Steam page and they have devlogs of like uh -huh. maps and quests and all these things. And I mean they say it's like a a simulation game, an adventure game, all these things, but I'm really interested in how a game like this works. Cause I mean I don't know, that just reminds me of a bunch of like Bethesda games like Skyrim or something like that. Games where you're just, I mean, mm -hmm. especially games like that where all the storylines of those games and a lot of like video games in general, when people talk about like power fantasies, is about you like you're a liberator of this land, liberator of this people, or, you know, Skyrim, you're this, you know, hero who was, you know, foretold all these years ago and you have to, mm -hmm. you're the only, you're literally the missing puzzle piece. You know, it's kind of fascinating because we were, before we got on, we were talking about 
a lot of different stuff in different games. And like, we were talking some about civilization and <laughs> Sid Meier and, and stuff. And, and it, it, you just kind of like jogged this weird memory from when I was a kid. And I found out about the civilization games because I remember like my mom was a subscriber to family fun magazine and sometimes I would glance through it and there was an article that was like, oh, like it was like, oh, you know, like here's some games for your kid, like you should get for your kid. Like if your kid's into games, like these are like wholesome, educational. And that's how I found out civilization. But I just remembered that the article was specifically about like God games, like you know, games where you have an infinite eye and are omniscient and like basically given the power of control and God. And, you know, it was just like, I don't know. It's just like a very strange way to sell a game yeah. and really literalizes, Quite literally playing God. Yeah. Like saying this is a whole genre, like literalizing that power fantasy of just total control. Um, um, there's a, there's a, uh, switching gears a little bit, but there's another example of first person perspective in cinema that I stumbled upon recently, um, watching the 2014 adaptation of EA's need for speed, which I'd been wanting to see for a little bit. Um, is it GoPro? Yeah, it's actually the first person is very much like hardcore Henry. I think like, because it's, in, you're in the driver's seat. And like, you've got like Imogene Poots in the, like the passenger seat and you sort of see her in the sort of perspective and it's kind of like wide angle digital GoPro, you know, and it just feels like very unreal and uncanny, but it's very, it's feels, and it feels a little like, you know, it's supposed to be kind of almost like VR a little bit, just the way that it feels like you're interacting with the world for those seconds. Gotcha. How long does that last? That honestly just feels like it's one of those things where they're like, we gotta we gotta put an Easter egg in here for the game players. No, it totally does, but it it's really just like insert shots. But I do I didn't you know, it didn't feel like overly sort of winking to me just because I really honestly I really just overall enjoyed the movie and really especially loved the the kind of the race sequences, like um both just the sort of general like sort of cutting between different cars and the the way that they were sort of matching cars and sort of building this sort of sustained momentum or changing speeds and accelerating and also a lot of the 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 you know it feels like this big kind of fast and furious knockoff but the races are honestly more like speed racer because they're like long extended cross country races and there's also like i don't know you know you just have these kind of like i mean obviously you have a lot of hijinks and absurd stunts in fast and furious as the series goes on but it felt a little more cartoonish almost to me um and a little more colorful and need for speed um and and you have also like all this gopro footage that's like that's cut in that's like not first person like you'll just literally like you'll have like it almost feels like these stray images and shots that happen in the in like the first jackass movie where you just like have a camera like land in the grass and like the lens is wet um, and like a car's like flying above it and it's just this stray shot. Um, but it's also, I think it's got such a great sense of action and perspective because it's director Scott Waugh, um, is like a long time stunt man. I mean, think of so many nineties, two thousands action movies and he probably maybe did the stunts for them. I mean, speed, triple X, even non-action movies like Coyote Ugly and like The Princess mm-hmm. Diaries, just a whole, just a lot of movies that like, you know, Some epic bar fights. 
Yeah, just movies that really I feel like proliferated and like um, I don't know. It just it it just seems like he's one of the. I feel like the as I look at action movies a lot of times, you notice that like beyond directors, there are these kind of auteurs that really shape the style, like you know, like editors um, and stuff. And I feel like he's yeah. just like as a stuntman, probably had a lot to do with how those movies ended up looking and feeling. So you definitely feel that in Need for Speed. Like it's just got amazing kind of action and the choreography is really next level. And he also directed the sort of proto 1517 to Paris real soldier action movie, Act of Valor, which mm-hmm. I've wanted to see forever. And he's got a movie coming out with John Cena and Jackie Chan. It's like international co-production. So Scott Wachurism possibly coming on a hot box near near you. Um, but that was just catching you up on the first person. Um, so talked a little bit longer than I intended to. But anyways, um, what about you, Seth? What's been coming up for you recently? What have you been intrigued by? Uh, I mean, I've kind of been on like a similar action kick to like what you were talking about with like Scott yeah. Law's career with some, you know, some old, some Brad Pitt, some... Angelina Jolie. I watched uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Scott Waugh did the stunts for it. Jesus. It's all connecting. Yeah, but I watched that, and that movie is like, hats off, honestly. What mm-hmm. just a... I feel like that's just a shining example of like the best of that, that type of action in 2004 or so. I feel like that's one of those movies now where like people at the time you know it was like i mean obviously with like the tabloid gossip and stuff was a big thing but it's very much like a a star studies type of movie like it's all about their personas no totally and i feel like at the time people were like oh this is just movies just kind of whatever but just because a lot of times movies now are pretty shitty it maybe retroactively looks better but i think also it's just like now considering it in just like the long arcs of the careers of both brad pitt and angelina jolie it's like Mm -hmm. there's a lot it's a it's a text now and way it maybe wasn't so much when it came yeah. out. I mean, well, you know, it's a it's a movie about uh marriage problems uh, and a movie that caused marriage problems, you know. Mhm. Uh this is the movie where Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt Brad Pitt met for the first time. And apparently this is, you know, I mean, I feel like you're watching the movie and you're watching Brad Pitt fall in love with Angelina Jolie as you go through it. Damn. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of beautiful. A little bit, and then it's, uh, you know, it's about them both being assassins who have lied to each other and gotten married for stability, and they, neither of them know they're assassins, and but they're working for rival agencies or something, so then they get assigned to kill each other. But then, you know, things happen, they figure out, you know, they can work together better than they can work against each other. Wow. And now that they know this new level of truth about each other, it, it unlocks a, a new level of romance as well. And it has this great... I don't know, just like a very great cohesive action set piece at the very end where you're in a closed like home goods store where you have, you know, I mean, you know, the usual stuff, the mannequins doing dressed in domestic clothing mm-hmm. and they're modeling in a kitchen or something like that. Um, and you have them just slipping and sliding and shooting everywhere. It's great. It's kind of the tail end of like, I feel like action movies having like really nice, well lit like guns. I feel like guns mm. aren't like given as much like emphasis in action movies these days in part maybe because of like the more like immediate like kind of handheld camera kind of like after the born movie style of just only just constant movement all the time no stillness kind of focusing on the guns and the equipment 
and the pieces that all fit together and all that stuff of the environment, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I feel like, yeah, I feel like the kind of action aesthetic now really kind of also maybe maybe i'm just sort of generalizing or uh, i don't know but i, I probably like just am. like no 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 but i'm just kind of thinking and i'm like yeah you know i don't know it's just like guns are just like matte black you know in addition to that sort of like just kind of de-emphasis from the form in general and i also feel like now too there's maybe guns are less emphasized both just because general i mean with just like mass shootings and stuff i feel like maybe people are like oh like we still want to have violence in our movies but we want to do it differently now because you know and like i don't know people are like uncomfortable understandably (laughs) but i feel like you know a lot of times that just leads to people trying to have their cake and eat it too and like sanitize violence and and like even the john wick movies that i mean are about very well choreographed shootouts like the guns in those are like completely interchangeable and he just kind of like picks them up and takes them and leaves them as he goes through no that was something else i was thinking of too is that like i think because well i think it's also so i think the chaos cinema cutting you know obviously doesn't lend itself to sort of emphasizing or really fixating on a solid still image of an object but then the sort of reaction to that which has been the really like sometimes digitally stitched together artificial long takes sometimes actual long takes where everything is like really choreographed and really stylized and like real and like you can see it all they they want to like showcase more hand-to-hand combat more like physically immediate kind of punishing stuff knife you know like john wicks i feel like there's a lot of stabbings and a lot of painful bruising bones breaking it's very very tactile and physical and like moving away from like john woo kind of like unreality of like like I read an essay once about like bullets and action movies and it was like, you know, if like Sam Peckinpah is like a shotgun blast or something, then John Woo is like, or if like, no, it was like, if, if like, you know, if like classic like action is like rock music, then John Woo gunfire is like techno, you know, it's like these like syncopated intense beats. That's just becomes this like trance state almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like just in the general trends like have not lended themselves to that. Um, I didn't really yeah. thought about that ever. Damn. I mean, you kind of see like the James Bond movies have struggled to like reinvent in this new kind of action environment because the James Bond movies are so much talked about in terms of the cars and the gadgets and the places. And they're very kind of lush or maybe like uh, I'm trying to think of the word for like very kind of like expensive, exquisite. I guess that's the word. Just like decadent, indulgent. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. I feel like the modern action style doesn't really let you, you let you sit yeah. and look and savor. No, totally. I mean, it's very much not. I, yeah, it doesn't feel like an object kind of like gear cinema quite as much. I do think that maybe an exception to this is which as an exception he is to most trends in contemporary English language action. I feel like Paul W.S. Anderson actually does like kind of fetishize the gun a little bit still. You know, you mm-hmm. have you have cuz you have like you know these like shotguns and just kind of like weird not like real air quotes sort of guns over in those movies, but also because he's just sort of like so in love with Mila Jovovich, you know, like, and she's holding a gun. Obviously he's going to kind of fixate on that and, and relish in that powerful image more than like most other action movies, which I think honestly, that's just what I think. In addition to a lot of like stylistic things, I think that's just what sets him apart. He's got love in the frame, you know, Mm -hmm. John Woo 
have this beating, bleeding heart. And we just got to get back to that. We just got to have more love in the action movies, more feeling. All love. I only am watching movies from now on, action movies from now on, where like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the co-stars are together, or like Resident Evil, the director and the lead are together. That's all I want. Only mm-hmm. couple cinema from here on out. No more fucking single incel cinema. If you're not getting dick down or pleasured, yeah. I don't I don't frankly care to see your movie. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, but on that note of with, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, I did watch yeah. also, uh, the first Tomb Raider movie mm. that she was in. I haven't seen any of the new ones, but I mean, she, uh, you know, just fights the Illuminati back when that was just like a little, uh, lesser known internet cult. I guess pre Da Vinci Code era, mm-hmm. you know, people were a little bit less on that tip. Yeah. And also speaking about modern James Bond, Daniel Craig is in it. With a great oh, damn. American accent, yeah. He's like her, kind of the old rival, maybe previous love interest, like that type of the, the globe-trotting kind of adventure mm-hmm. B-movie that Indiana Jones is kind of molded off of. He kind of feels like that trope, and this time he's a mercenary working for the enemy kind of thing. It is kind of fascinating, the sort of like layers of pastiche, you know, it's like... Uncharted is kind of a riff on Tomb Raider, which is kind of a riff on Indiana Jones, which is kind of a riff on like old adventure serials, which are kind of a riff on like dime novels. And it's just like, and those are kind of a riff on racism (laughs) and colonialism and all that good shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, the main point I really have to say about it is, uh, just the soundtrack it was a real shocker. Um, in the beginning, she's like fighting this robot in this tomb, these ancient ruins. And, you know, she's kind of flipping. And Was she raiding the tomb? Mm-hmm. And she's shooting this thing. She has her dual, her signature, you know, the dual pistol. She's running all over things. And there's a lot of great kind of full-bodied, like, framed action. Mm. You know, I mean, it's very, like, physical, like, gunfights. Kind of the things people praise, like, John Wick and those things for. But this one was... More so, I feel like kind of reflective of like showing like Laura, Lara's capability and stuff like that, since they were like adapting this game character <laughs> who's this adventurer and badass and mm-hmm. sex object and all this, all these things. So I feel like they're kind of attacking that. Anyway, she's fighting this thing and then she gets to the end of this tomb and she gets like a computer terminal and she like opens it up, types a command, and makes this robot alien thing stop hunting her, and it's a training robot, and she takes out, like, a Sony memory stick and puts it... It has, like, Laura's party mix on it, and she puts it in, and it plays Outcast. But, you know, I mean, it's great. There's a uh, Basement Jacks, Where's Your Head At, Elevation by U2, Whoa. Nine Inch Nails, there's a song in there. Where Did We Go Wrong as a Culture? You tell me. I haven't watched the second one, though, uh, directed by Jan DeBont. Yeah, I mean, you know, first one you got Simon West on the beat, he of Con Air, which is a movie I truly love. And um, I also think he made his name. He, like, directed the, like, Clydesdale commercials for Budweiser or some kind of Budweiser commercial. Yeah, uh, but Jan DeBon, I mean, we love him. Stan, gotta stand him. Yeah, I need to see it. Apparently that one, they're just like, we gotta go big. We gotta go bold. You know, it's that's actually Tomb Raider. Pretty good segue, I have to say, into our topic for today's episode 
because it comes up in the sort of main movie we're centered around. Oh, yeah. I when we decided to watch uh, Demon Lover, I was watching it and they talk about like Laura Croft sex slave dot com. Yeah. And I was like, geez, I guess I did just watch the original movie with no intention of seeing this new version of Demon Lover. But. And these, yeah, these French business executives are like, wait, like Lara Croft and Gina Gershon's like, you know, from Tomb Raider, the video game. Like, come on, guys. You don't game. Her shirt says, I love gossip, but it should say, say mm-hmm. I love games. Maybe that should be the cover art. Damn. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Gaming. We have, we have logged on to the dark web, truly, to talk about our, this movie, Demon Lover, by Olivier Aseas. Mm-hmm. It's getting a 2K restoration of this un, uncut, unrated, approved version by the director. But I don't know if this is like the previous director's cut or if this is a new director's cut or something. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I think it might be the same because when I was sort of, I was sort of looking at like at the lengths and it seems like the same but i think there might have also been another version i'm not totally sure yeah you know this movie is about 20 years old now and um the yeah that restoration just sort of became available for rental and and whatnot in virtual screening rooms and is um you know distributed by janus films so going to get a uh release by criterion mm-hmm. i assume at some point in the near future and of course they're also putting out uh his movie irma vep uh in the next couple of months and uh, they put out cold water a few years ago and have generally kind of been um, restoring a lot of his his work but i think that this movie uh is very uh aligned with sort of the interests of this podcast and i know it mm-hmm. sort of like did a number on me when i first saw it in maybe 2016 or 2017 because i sort of knew the conceit and i was like this sounds a little wild but i didn't realize like quite how wild it actually is it's just i don't know it's fascinating because it's like acs is not really at all the <laughs> a very respectable like ter- in kind of like european art house filmmaker but he still sort of has that image a little bit like you know i mean he's french you know so there's he's a, a, yeah. in, at least in the u.s he's a little bit up on a platter on a pedestal of some kind and seems maybe a little more dignified or serious but this movie is just as trashy as they come i think mm-hmm. and that's sort of why i love it I don't know. It's hard to like watch this movie and not see some kind of like, you know, media critique, cultural critique, all these things. I feel like any kind of cultural critique it has is like pretty, pretty hollow. I don't know. I watched the first time I watched it, I was really into it, but I guess I'd just never really like seen a movie that I don't know, had this approach to this subject matter before Um, watching it again. The second Mm -hmm. time I was like a lot more polarized on it. It felt just like really like acidic and pissed off at like anybody and everybody yeah i don't know it made me feel kind of gross this time no i mean it it definitely like it has a kind of grossness to it a kind of nihilism kind of solipsism perhaps i mean i think asias in general i feel like is a really jaded filmmaker you know, writing the cusp of sort of boomer Gen X, like being that age. Yeah. And himself, like after the French New Wave, him also being yeah. a critic from Caillou de Cinema turning filmmaker in France. He is not in that, you know, obviously kind of, you know, he started making movies in the 80s and um, had worked as a critic, really sort of became renowned in the 90s and, and into the 2000s. And, um, 
But I, yeah, you know, he doesn't really have that kind of clear place. Like he doesn't fit into a movement like the French New Wave exactly. And so I think maybe he's always been this kind of isolated, alienated figure a little bit. Um, I think he also sort of, you know, came into his voice at a time when French cinema, I don't know, is going through some shit or like maybe a little bit sort of in the, not on the outs, but like not the kind of international cinema that everyone is talking about in like the nineties. You know, I think by that time, you know, people were into Iran and into Taiwan and, uh, and into, you know, exploring different countries that really hadn't been heard from before. And also like, you know, he was born in late fifties, I believe, you know, grew up like in the sixties, but didn't really get to participate. And so sort of coming of age at a time after this revolutionary, potentially revolutionary moment where it seems like and then it seems like there's no hope or anything. You know, he's he's, you know, to the left, but I think is uh, he's not really a radical. You know, he seems pretty defeatist a lot of the times Mm -hmm. about culture and just the world. I think he's both he's he he is kind of defeatist but is trying to is still trying to prod some things and ask some questions and figure out where to go. And I feel like this movie, especially um, and the ones that I think we're most interested in and we'll talk about are very like in the network of kind of like globalization and very like of the millennium a little bit. And I feel like he is very much like, you know, how do I, as like a Frenchman who's trying to make movies that are distributed internationally And, you know, I'm in this sort of global media economy that is diversifying into all kinds of images and content. Like, what's my place? Where do I go? And I think Demon Mm -hmm. Lover is a real, like, crisis of that. Yeah. I mean, Irma Vep was a bit of a crisis of that, but also quite celebratory of French cinema. It's a movie that is just totally reliant on your understanding Mm -hmm. of of those kind of movies. Kind of in the similar way that I felt about uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I do kind of see, like... This director, Olivier Asayas, in line with Quentin Tarantino oh, yeah. a little bit, where he's just very knowledgeable and always trying to make something that's a little in conversation with kind of their like national cinema. Yeah, they're very both referential, um, I think, and very in touch with like the history of cinema. Yeah, and a common critique for both both is being a pastiche artist. Yeah, You've already totally. kind of brought that up for for Asayas, but they're both and they're both like you know very big music heads and i think at the time of them coming out seemed like really hip but now seem very like how do you do fellow kids a little bit even though mm-hmm. i still like Asayas' movies and stuff like i do you know he's not really like a prescient like super insightful comment like you know commentator into the state of media you know he's still making like you know his last movie was fucking nonfiction, which was originally going to be called ebook which was mm-hmm. about like you know the state of publishing i would have probably watched it by now if i knew it was going to be called <laughs> ebook i just like still can't convince myself to watch it. it's i mean it's mostly it's that sort of stereotype of french cinema of just like middle-aged people having like conversations and relationships but it does yeah. do a little bit of like you know that kind of pastiche he's known for which like in irma vep and sort of earlier in his career i think is more like literal collage like it's almost like sampling you know taking these clips from movies being very referential sometimes with music too he uses it similarly and then you get up to like clouds of sils maria personal shopper and and nonfiction, which like both 
Sils Maria and nonfiction have Juliette Binoche as an actress. And in Sils Maria, she's in like X-Men type superhero movies. And in nonfiction, she's in like police procedurals on TV. But you see both of those things and he kind of recreates them. So as he becomes like this, you know, more, I think, less underground filmmaker, maybe. And not that this is like an underground movie necessarily, but I don't know. It's just like he started he at this point kind of pivoted from like doing this like very like literal material kind of textured collage to like actually doing these bigger budget kind of more stylized riffs on genres yeah i mean i kind of see demon lover which what irma came out in like 97 yeah this was about 2002 Mm -hmm. and then boarding gate which came out in like 2007 i don't know i see them as like some kind of a loose trilogy with similar like formal concerns um but also, uh, I see them as a bit of a series in in their involvement with like Sonic Youth and Kim Gordon, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like those are used to kind of interesting effects in each. Armavep uses the song Tunic in this like maybe dream sequence or something. It's really amazing how it's used in that movie. And then Demon Lover has a full score by Sonic Youth, mm-hmm. which gives it this really nice kind of texture to all the moments. Yeah, it's a very like jagged, noisy kind of score, and it and it's just like constantly unsettling, which is exactly how the images are. You know, like yeah, but I it's feel kind like... of the only thing that unites all the images because it's just such a disparate movie. All the different parts are so different. No, I mean it's very rainy, moody, like smeared kind of, and I think that I think Demon Lover especially and Boarding Gate too. But I feel like all of, a lot of his movies, honestly, they're not movies you can take like screenshots of. It's there's never a stillness or a restfulness the camera's like constantly sort of moving and not in that like intense action kind of chaos way but just like the camera's you know just always repositioning sometimes it is really intense and tight and messy um but it's just like never you're constantly kind of put on edge Mm -hmm. and the score does that too definitely uh and then the last one their boarding gate has a role played by Kim Gordon in it where she is this businesswoman who's also in charge of like organized crime and speaks Cantonese to them Mm -hmm. uh, to or to to some of the people in her crime organization and stuff that are antagonizing the main character. You know, I mean, I think they're also like, you know, they're artists that in some way have a similar affinity because I feel like they sort of, again, they both read that like boomer Gen X line. You know, they both started working, like making work in the 80s, but really became much bigger forces in the 90s. But at already at that time, you know, I feel like, you know, Sonic Youth like wasn't grunge. It was still sort of like a little behind that, a little older than that. Well, I think the thing that unites both of them is that they're kind of like um, a wave of artists that like came out of institution, but doesn't believe in institution or Mm. came to like disbelieve in it or become disenchanted by it. Um, Sonic Youth, you know, known as like the art school punks or that's like how I feel like they're usually talked um, because of maybe like an art yeah. history or a fine music background. It's honestly kind of similar. You know, they have that Daydream Nation album, you know, has a Gerhard Richter painting as its cover. I mean, it's sort of a similar kind of like collage type art. And their music is, you know, sort of referential too. Um, mm-hmm. um, like in Irma Vep, the song that I mentioned, uh, Tunic, is there's a parenthetical in the title that says song for Karen. It's about Karen Carpenter, you know, famously somebody who you know, was was kind of propped up for her feminine image and uh, create a lot of like, you know, kind of disorders around her relationship with food. 
Mm -hmm. and like nutrition and body image and all these things. And it's something that ended up killing her, uh, which this was all kind of the subject of Todd Haynes movie superstar, which is about Karen Carpenter. uh, And it's made using uh, at times, you know, collages of interviews um, news stories, kind of literal paper collage and stuff, but then there are dramatizations of scenes of her life made using Barbie and Ken dolls, mm-hmm. which of course is made because this is a very unauthorized movie that does not shine the brightest light on the Carpenter family, and it's very yeah, honest yeah, yeah. about like eating disorders and things, but also is something where obviously the Barbie, if we're talking about a movie about issues around body image, uh, the movie's kind of made of this like collage of different like toys and products and advertisements yeah. and things but also with with the barbie being kind of an idealized body image for a lot of people who when they're young are like i mean mentally but also quite literally playing with it yeah and i think you know pointing out todd haynes it's like you know he's kind of of the same generation a little bit of tarantino and Aseas. um and so i think has that similar kind of postmodern pastiche mode i mean even something like carol like doesn't seem necessarily referential but it is still playing with like classic Hollywood melodrama form in a way that's fundamentally kind of pastiche. So I think he's like the, you know, the less overt, less corny kind of end of that. Or maybe it's more literal in like Velvet Goldmine, you know, that's such a like obviously kind of riff on existing sort of musicians and genres and stuff. You also have like I'm Not There is a movie about Bob Dylan, which has different actors playing Bob Dylan, including like Camp Blanchett at one point. And also his most recent movie, Dark Waters, is just absolutely just like xeroxing like frames from like pacula movies and stuff yeah he's just totally in that paranoid thriller mode that alan j pacula is most kind of iconic for and not to mention it's you know it's a movie with lots of folders and files and post-it notes and also that's very aware of like the texture of kind of small town and suburban america you know it's very you know benihana uh, like Arby's gas stations, Creed playing in the background. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's not quite in your face, like in the way it is in a lot of, you know, something like Demon Lover, but it is that sort of same kind of tendency of like really f- kind of foregrounding the like artificiality of and like productness and commodification of. Um, a lot of contemporary life. But, you know, one thing we haven't even really, I mean, I assume if you're listening to an episode about Demon Lover, you probably know what the movie's about, but we didn't even really give a, like, conceit yeah, I, breakdown. I just I kind just of mentioned, like, a sex slave website, and then we never talked about <laughs> it again. I feel like but, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, this movie is, I'm, you know, it's about the... Uh, negotiation, basically, of the distribution right, global distribution rights of... Uh, you know, anime pornography, hentai, uh, you know, from literal manga comics on up to crazy, super processed, rendered CGI mm-hmm. with really jiggling, uh, anatomically impossible form and stuff. And, um, yeah. And all about all of this kind of uh, espionage and intrigue and shit that arises from it. But also, the movie is not quite exactly about that, per se. It is, yeah. it isn't. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so like the story is it's about this this French corporation going to meet a Japanese corporation who needs an investment to advance their computer units that are going to be rendering this like 3D pornography. And then it I don't know, it's a movie that kind of spirals out moments will turn into other types of moments all the time. And as you're mentioning with like the camera movement and things, the movie is is kind of just like always tracing just like different flows of money. Um, and exactly, it's almost yeah. just like 
kind of like disinterested even in like the content and it's a movie that's also about uh, a lot of people just like watching really it's kind of about like media desensitization yeah um, yeah because you'll just like have people casually watching um really violent movies you'll have people casually just like watching stuff on tv people like renting porn in their hotel rooms people playing video games and stuff Mm -hmm. but you'll always see like there are scenes where like the camera will just like flow from like one transaction happening between two hands to another transaction yeah i mean it's very much a cinema of like credit cards and contracts and conference room meetings and just you know to put it bluntly, you know, just like liminal spaces and uh, non places, basically, mm-hmm. is what is what this movie is all about. You know, it's really that that flow, like transactional cinema, um, which I think you know is seen so visually. You know, it's not just kind of set in this thematically liminal place, but just visually, you never feel very certain of where you are. And nothing's ever like clear or sort of straight on or bright until the sort of crazy twist ending of the movie, um, which Mm -hmm. which we can get into at some point. But yeah, you know, so it's obviously so it's this movie that is about a but, you know, being in so much about pornography and, and just kind of like the pornographication of like a general kind of content stream of images. Um, It's very much about this sort of digital international economy that's like built on the images and the bodies of women. And, you know, it's about this sort of series of like backstabbings, basically Um, the beginning of the movie, Diane, who's played by Connie Nielsen takes out, this uh, woman who's in her way and, you know, gets promoted to the superior position and becomes more powerful in this company. And then about halfway through the movie, Chloe Sevigny, who plays kind of who basically we can presume Diane might've been before the movie started, you know, this like lowlier kind of secretary who's just more in the background. She totally turns about face and becomes this like corporate dominatrix, like, and, uh, Connie Nielsen is just like totally under her thumb, subject to her whims and has no power anymore. And the kind of the physical transformation, honestly, in their performances is, is kind of amazing because the first half, Connie Nielsen is very much this sort of like, you know, she's not like outspoken, but she's this very like assertive kind of girl boss, <laughs> e-girl mm-hmm. boss, perhaps, who like, you know, she'll say she'll bring up uncomfortable shit in meetings and, you know, be like, what about, you know, does, you know, flatly says to the Japanese company, like, do you a artists like use minors as models stuff that other people are kind of tiptoeing around or afraid to bring up she's just blunt about but the second half of the movie she's totally like drained exhausted collapsing in on herself and chloe sevigny who's been kind of much more like a little more childlike and innocent in some of her kind of performance i feel like she totally flips and becomes just so intense and like menacing and um and the casting feels as it does in, in, I mean, it does in like all of these, you know, both this trilogy that we've talked about, Irma Vep, Demon Lover and Boarding Gate, but also the ones with Kristen Stewart too, feels like this very intentional casting. Um, and apparently this movie was written like all the women or in it was originally, it was written as they're all French, but he intentionally kind of casted. I mean, Chloe Sevigny and Gina Gershon are American. Connie Nielsen is Danish, but frequently in American movies. So by casting these like international stars, like he does with Maggie Chung, Asia Argento, Kristen Stewart, it really kind of draws attention to the fact that these women are like in an industry themselves as actors, a similar kind of industry 
their, their products, their commodities, their images are made into those things. And so you have these backstabbings and you have these positions in the movie where women think that they've reached the, the highest echelon of power. And they've done that by subjugating other women. And then the tables are turned and they realize that like they've been propagating this system and they're still within it and they can never transcend it as long as that system exists. And it's just about this like economic exploitation and domination kind of um, uh, specifically in a kind of gendered way, which I think brings it back to Sonic Youth a little bit because I mean, obviously brings it back to what you were saying earlier about Karen Carpenter reminds me of another Sonic Youth song swimsuit issue, which is about like a record, an executive at Geffen records who is Sonic Youth's label at the time it was in it about an incident of sexual harassment between an executive and a secretary. And in that song, Kim Gordon like name checks all of the models in the 1992 Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. So it feels again like kind of playing in that kind of like superstar Karen Carpenter way or Team and Lover way, just like kind of playing with like this gendering of 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 entertainment and kind of that sort of exploitation that arises from that, but also about this sort of like gendering of capitalism and how like women and femininity are like turned into these commodities. I feel like, I don't know, you know, I don't think that's necessarily, I'm sure like as I was just like, liked Sonic Youth's music and got along with them, but I don't know. I just feel like that gives it kind of an extra resonance in addition to the real like formal parallel. Mm hmm. Watching this movie, though, after I'd seen, because I think I watched this before I saw either Irmavep or Boarding Gate, but I realized that maybe some of the thematic interests of this movie are individually explored in both of those um, in a way that I yeah. thought was maybe more productive or something than this. You know, Irmavep is this movie about um, a French production company trying to remake this, like, French film from the like 1917, I think, called Irma Vep. Or no, it's uh, it's the serial uh, Le Vampire. Oh, but the character is called Irma Vep. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you just see like them start and stop trying to produce different versions of this with different people in different roles, and you know some of them not taking off the ground, and a lot of the movie is kind of the uncertainty of what's happening. But also, I mean, the movie is about. It's a, you know, a bit of like a viewership critique mm -hmm. where, I mean, Demon Lover, there's this one line where someone says that like everyone watches, but nobody really like knows what they're looking at. I don't know, kind of like armchair philosophy about it because it because you're watching that TV. Yeah, I think that the Irma Vep is much more it's in a it's in this much more specific context. You know, it's this real kind of like state of the union of French cinema almost. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, not just looking back to silent cinema, but there's also like a scene where there's a, like a Chris Marker film on a television. Um, and there's, you know, the end of the movie is this reference to like kind of the lettrist and situationist cinema of the fifties mm -hmm. and sixties. And so it's sort of pointing back to this like radical past. Yeah. And also talking about intentional casting Maggie Chung uh, plays herself in the movie herself in real life being a star in Hong Kong movies and then in the movie she is is cast as herself and it references previous movies she's been in and then also the director says that we would like this type of thing from mm -hmm. this like Hong Kong movie can you watch it and so it has different action they actually show us like there's like a videotape scene of uh the Johnny Toe movie heroic trio at one point and so it does kind of position this counterpoint between like 
French cinema, which has always been in this very complicated position of like, it's very sort of, you know, it's, it's a, like a cultural product of the state. And so that in, uh, you, you have sort of very specific types of movies that get made and types of filmmakers who get funded because of mm-hmm. how France wants to present itself to itself and to the rest of the world. Whereas Hong Kong has like always been this very export driven commercial market. It's kind of the totality of Hong Kong cinema is, is kind of like the industry, you know, it's like there's hasn't really been a space for a large counter cinema outside of that industry. So you you have Maggie Chung, who's from this kind of certain filmmaking context coming into this very different context. So it's sort of about that sort of like international collision. And I think Demon Lover is about that to an extent. You know, you have these business meetings between Japanese and French and Americans and media coming from all over place, places from all over the world. You know, you have obviously anime, literal Japanese anime, but you also have like anime influenced American games like Oni... And mm-hmm. then you have this scene where Connie Nielsen briefly watches a musical performance of the new metal song Back to the Primitive by Soulfly. And they're like, they were like born out of the wreckage of like a Brazilian metal band. So they're also sort of this like weird, just on, you know, another spot on the map. And it's just yeah. all of this shit is coming together. And so whereas Irma Vep is this like historical reflection, this movie is like very much pulling from kind of its time. I mean, it is like some of its reference points are by this point, by 2002 would have been a little bit old. Like the very end of the movie, there's a poster for the 98 Godzilla, which I just, I fuck, I just love that image just appearing. Like it's this like kind of shock to me almost like, Mm -hmm. um, I do love the inclusion of Oni in this though, which is a, you know, kind of turn of the millennium game by Bungie before they, I think after they made Marathon, but before they made Halo and then uh, went on to make Destiny. Um, and also it was originally made for like PC and Mac, but Rockstar helped make a console version of it for the PlayStation 2. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's something that you look at and you're just like, that looks like, that looks like Ghost in the Shell. Um, yeah. It's kind of like a, kind of a, a large budget in the way that a lot of blockbuster or a lot of like um, Rockstar games have been kind of like self-willed into like, you know, convincing everybody that these like blockbuster, huge deal mm-hmm. video games. Um, it's kind of like that, but also in the same way that Demon Lover is a bit of like a document about this like dissemination of a form of Japanese culture um, into the global marketplace. And especially into like, you know, kind of like higher art colonial centers of like Western art, like mm-hmm. France and America. You know, Asias is very indebted to a lot of Asian cinema. I think he made a documentary about Ho Shao Shin and wrote a lot about Taiwanese cinema. Um, and I think you can see that some formally in some of his work of kind of resemblance. But I think it's interesting that in both Irma Vep and this, you have a kind of a panic about like Asian media displacing European media. Like, I don't know if it's really like a panic from him, but you just sort of sense this, like, you know, like in Irma Vep, there's this like French critic who's interviewing the Jean-Pierre Leo director character. And he's like, Oh, like French cinema is nothing compared to Jean Wu. Like Hong Kong is the real cinema or <laughs> whatever. And I feel like, you know, like Asias, like I think he would probably kind of agree with that in a way, like, you know, mm-hmm. but I do feel like he's also like, well, I'm also sort of coming from this French tradition that's changing or whatever. But this is also Demon Lovers, I think 
I mean, I think there's kind of the lot like 20 or 30 years, there's been a lot of anime panic, like in some ways, you know, maybe like more overt in the past. But I think, I don't know, I think a lot of the ways that you see people talk about like, like, I don't know, online culture is sort of influenced by a like kind of being weirded out by anime, I think sometimes like the dismissal of it. Um, mm. And I feel like there's, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that obviously he put anime his, in his movie, so I don't think he dislikes anime, but I feel like there is a kind of sense that like the tide is turning and like another part of the world's cultural product is kind of displacing another one's. Yeah. I mean, this is very obviously about, very intense and kind of extreme visions of anime. Um, pretty much any kind of moment with Japanese animation in this is like pornographic. I think the first release of it having a lot of like pixelated parts that have since been taken mm -hmm. out or de or like uncensored and this like unrated cut, but they are always kind of deployed in this way that's supposed to, you know, have kind of like a, it's, I don't know, it, it does feel a little bit gawky. Yeah, for, just for like sure that style of animation or something. Yeah, no, it is kind of, and I mean, I think it's like, there's a sort of, there's that, I mean, there's that same kind of gawkiness at like digital spaces too, because all of the websites we see in the movie are these just like horrible, terrifying password protected places. You know, the titular mm -hmm. website, demonlover.com is basically this videodrome site where you watch women in being tortured and you like pay and tell them what you want to happen and it happens and so spoiler at the end of the movie you find out that connie nielsen has basically been like the victim of this and subject to this and sort of towards the end of the movie she's like escaping and is wearing this like jumpsuit that looks like storm from the x-men and then it cuts to this brightly lit american suburb you see this kid in his home with the godzilla poster in his room logging on stealing his dad's credit card logging on to demonlover.com then going to the like site you know and 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 getting in and like being like i want to dress this woman like storm from the x-men have her stripped of her powers and tied to her bed and then it like cuts and you know and it's yeah. just like you realize that this whole movie has been in the kind of like gaze and the purview of this like gawky teen boy it is kind of weird in that way though where it feels like the movie is like i feel like rather than being antagonistic toward like anime and japanese culture i think the the movie as a whole is maybe just a little bit more like hand wringing about like the normalization of pornography which was yeah. i mean already normal before the movie came out but i mean this movie like the only people you see like consume it the like you just see all this business happening and all this money coming from or this money being exchanged but you never see like where it's coming from and the only time you ever see somebody paying money for these kind of things mm -hmm. and not just like testing it because they're a business person and they want to know what they're dealing in yeah um, the only time you see it is like that kid stealing money from his parents you know i do feel like you know i think it's it there is a kind of uh yeah there is a sort of anxiety you know, about pornography, about just like new media in general. But I do feel like there's a way it can be read as like, I don't know, just like in line with this kind of like economic exploitation, the fact that this kid is like, you know, taking his dad's credit card. And I feel like, you know, obviously, like, I just, you know, just knowing like the average American teen boy, you know, like, and just kind of the internet and everything like that kid would definitely not pay if he had the opportunity to. And I feel like that's this kind yeah. of like further level of like exploitation of like, being like, I don't even have to give you money or my own money to view this image. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to pay for it 
I can just get it and like do this to someone and like that's it and um and yeah. i don't know it's like i think that uh i i started thinking about this because we mentioned laura croft and the laura croft sex slave site that gets mentioned in the movie where there's yeah it's like a as like a sister site for like this other internet porn companies like they have the like reputable stuff and then they have the stuff that's like you know celebrities with you know, that are like nude leaked photos or whatever. And then they have this like erotic copyright violating site. And I remembered, um, well, first of all, I was thinking, you know, in 2002, there was also another movie that came out that was kind of influenced by Tomb Raider, uh, Gus Van Sant's Jerry, but they're very different because Jerry is interested in like the landscape of video games. And this is like interested in the objectness and subjectness, I think. And I remembered this short film um, by the experimental filmmaker Peggy Awesh from 2001 that's called She Puppet. And it's like footage of from her experience playing the Tomb Raider games edited together um, and basically about sort of what we've been talking about, about like controlling images of women and like you know the autonomy is here who's in control what the kind of free will is here which i think is sort of what this movie is about it's just sort of like it's a very when i phrase it this way it's such a kind of like a panicky question but it's like who's holding the controller you know and like Mm -hmm. and i think it ultimately like that critique is kind of like at this point especially is like okay whatever but i just i don't know there's just something about the sort of collage of this movie that's just like it really goes for it i mean in some ways both in that sort of multimedia form but also in the really sort of intentional specific kind of commodified casting reminds me a lot of Southland tales, Mm -hmm. even though it's got a panic about digital media, the way it integrates it into the text of the movie, I feel like honestly undoes that a little bit because it's like, Mm -hmm. I think it shows an understanding of it. Yeah. It's recognizing that at the very least, like this shit looks cool, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, like in relation to like, I guess, looking at economics as like a video game and who has the controller and stuff like that everybody in this game is always like not really acting for themselves they're always like in service of something else Mm -hmm. whether they're like a business person dealing in other people's money other people's services other people's um videos and media and things like that Mm -hmm. or even just like other people's desires uh, I don't know. I mean, you rarely ever see like the in consumer or even like the base producer because even like with the production of the the anime and the mm-hmm. hentai and things, you I mean, their animation and there's even questions about where the inspiration for these images comes from in terms of if they're from minors or anything like that. Yeah, and I can only imagine there's there's probably too some like wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some fucked up labor practices or you know crunching or you know basically well i think the the movie does kind of foreground a little bit of the anime production where whenever you're in the studio you do see just the banks oftentimes like women who are animators who are just constantly drawing cells in between like keyframes by like an action like artist or something like that and then they're the ones that are generating like the final detail shots and things like that or you know the backgrounds and the key assets and things but so like I mentioned how this movie is kind of like straddling two tendencies or two like points of interest in that I think are more better explored. One in Irmavep being kind of, you know, consumption, a bit like uh, like symbiotic traditionalism and things like that. But this boarding gate is more concerned with this other tendency, which I'm kind of outlining here about uh, kind of globalization, but also just like the general like uncertainty of 
who represents whom, um, whose things you're mm-hmm. dealing in. But I feel like generally what that's about is, like you were talking about with liminality, things that are exchangeable and kind of always in flux. That movie is, I feel like, a, a much more thorough exploration of that in, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's interesting because it's just a lot less well in some ways it's very literal in its themes because i mean the title boarding gate you know gesturing towards airports towards international travel kind of like Mm -hmm. sets it within the sort of context of like liminality and i mean there's so much of the movie is in these kind of spaces like office spaces or just you know kind of just these sort of bland blank surfaces where you're not totally kind of sure of like where you are. It's just these very disposable kind of interchangeable backgrounds for the most part. And it's like overtly sort of like feels like it's trying to be this kind of, or at least in its sort of premise, it sort of presents itself as like a very kind of like conventional genre thriller in some ways. Um, And I feel like it's maybe it's like, even though it's very abstracted and I think in what it's doing with ideas, it's in some ways like one of Asias's more like kind of almost straightforward conventional movies, which I think maybe makes it more impressive and is why like it took me like the second watch to really like get more out of it because I felt like for me at least like I don't know, it's just so elusive. Like there's just kind of a like nothingness to it, a kind of purposeful sort of like, you know, it's not it, there's never really anything to hold on to a lot of the times and that's because the protagonist, the Asia Archinsha character is just constantly like on unstable ground and she herself she's just just trying to like survive to make it to the next place going to all these different countries doing all these different deals different kinds of work you know she does sex work she does like just office business work she does other kinds of outside of the lines of legality work. She really just does literally anything that I think will sort of allow her to survive and continue to exist. She talks about wanting to, you know, go to China and open a club and is looking for money for that. But I think really she's just trying to survive in some ways the, like it's a very different movie, but there is a kind of, I think almost like kinship, uh, or like this, I feel like boarding gate is my uncut gems, honestly, because it's just about this person trying to make these deals, trying to do whatever they can to kind of, you know, they're like two steps behind, but also like two steps ahead at the same time. And like, they're just really sort of desperately trying to survive. But Boarding Gate is also like extremely, it's erotic in a very different way than Demon Lover, which is kind of trying to shock you with it, I think. Whereas Boarding Gate is just Mm -hmm. like, very sexual yeah i mean i guess it's a difference between like a pornographic thriller and an erotic thriller yeah but i mean the first time i watched boarding gate i've only seen it that one time but it really clicked with me that that time you're just you're just on a higher wavelength i guess i mean there's some that i'm on the lower wavelength on (laughs) definitely it just reminded me a lot of the born movies yeah i mean it totally feels like it's trying to like sell itself as that kind of thing you know like it, mm-hmm. it feels like this movie almost like wants to mislead you, I think, like yeah. by sort of, you know, it's a very like the old adage, the Godard quote that all you need for a film is a girl and a gun. I mean, that's literally the poster for this movie is is Asia mm-hmm. Argento like, well, there's two posters I've seen. There's one where she's like 
crouching in lingerie and she's holding a gun like up. And then there's another one I've seen, which is a sort of image of her like kind of touching herself. Um, But she's also sort of holding a gun around the crotch. So it sort of foregrounds the kind of violence and sexuality are like themes here in a way, because they're also mechanisms of exchange and transaction and trade. But Mm -hmm. it's just like, because it's trying to, you know, it doesn't have that like, postmodern collage of demon lover it's not like this very disruptive it's it's about flow and transaction and liminality it feels much more about just like the present and the moment more so than like contextualizing the moment totally it like the thing is is like demon lover has this kind of flow state but it often pulls you out of that i mean particularly the ending but i also think a lot of the sort of media touches and references serve to sort of Mm-hmm. jar you and force you out of this reality you're in but i think boarding gate it doesn't do that it doesn't it doesn't push you out and i feel like it's also like yeah. very you know it feels very much probably influenced by michael mann because i know that Asias is a fan of heat and and man's movies but i also kind of am yeah. like you know would not be surprised at all if michael mann had seen this and it had sort of influenced black hat in some way because they just feel like very similar kinds of movies to me these sort of airport thrillers about transaction Mm -hmm. but demon lover to me is always i feel like kind of it always comes back to this like docking position of watching somebody watch something that is like really aggressive or intense Mm -hmm. and they're very like unfazed by it i don't know i don't think oni's a hyper violent video game it's like very like cartoon cyberpunk anime inspired um but you just kind of watch like Chloe Sevigny just like brain dead on the bed, like drinking a beer mm-hmm. and playing this game. You, you watch people like very matter of factly talk about like the hentai they're watching. Um, that in the context of this French movie, you know, the audience might, you know, blush at it or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the business people are just very matter of fact about the whole thing and talking about it as just an item without it affecting the people that are like navigating that business discussion Mm -hmm. and boarding gate really doesn't like leave you much of a moment to reflect until like the very last shot yeah i think that um there's this quote from asias that i i remember reading uh from a essay about demon lover i believe where he was talking about the sort of influence or riffing on of of american action movies in his work and he says you know a lot of action movies they start at this very zoomed out like macro level and then at the by the end they're at this super intimate interpersonal micro level you know you start with like big international conflicts or something and then by the end you're down to like a fist fight between two guys in a warehouse and so it's this kind of zooming in but I think that the thing about Boarding Gate is that Boarding Gate is like zoomed in the whole time. It's on the micro level the whole time. You're never clear of it's it's never really like certain, you know, who all the actors are, who all the interests are, who all the investors are, like what's all at stake. You get this intense anxiety and kind of affect, but information is a scarce commodity, I think and in Mm -hmm. context as well which i think that's what just i think demon lover is this like laboratory almost where he's sort of investigating these sort of ideas of like how 
just sort of we're adrift in a sea of images. But I feel like Boarding Gate is actually like about the condition of like lack of contextuality or just like there being no context. But also, I mean, the story does like weave. We've talked about it on this podcast before in relation to things like Kane and Lynch too. But you're kind of in this massive manufacturing and kind of export hub uh, city where you're kind of going through these different like shipping and packaging areas for mm-hmm. businesses that you aren't really sure what there's a lot of you know kind of technology manufacturing uh so i feel like it's also about kind of business and globalization yeah and and things like that but maybe from like another another perspective rather than like the boardroom litigation and the airport travel yeah more so like the product view for sure and i mean i think there's uh in a lot of the movie, there's sort of this sort of implication or insinuation that, you know, that there's like kind of business of counterfeiting going on. But Kim Gordon makes it explicit when she shows up that she is like, you know, manufacturing these kind of counterfeit products on the cheap to be sold as like name brand goods and and designer clothes, basically these knockoffs. And I feel like that's sort of this is what this movie is like. You know, it's sort of this presenting itself as this kind of counterfeit of an American action movie. And in, and in that kind of imitation sort of, I think ends up revealing something deeper because it's like, it has all of these elements of like the Bourne movies, you know, like traveling all over the world, globe hopping, passports, computers, phones, communication, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. But that's, but also like crisis environments where like, there's always like an ambient siren or something. Those kind of like, even like sound designs. It's flip in the Bourne movies. All that shit is like the set dressing and the window dressing for the story of Jason Bourne. Asias flips the script. And I think he makes the actual story and plot of this movie, the like set dressing for all of those kind of things, all of the things that enable both sort of the existence of of Hollywood action movies, but also of like international finance or whatever you want to extrapolate Mm -hmm. it to. Um, And I think really the only kind of like big sort of overt references in this movie are some of the needle drops. Like there's a club that, Asia Argento goes into and you hear the KLF's What Time Is Love playing and you know I'm a huge fucking KLF fan and I feel like a lot of the kinds of you know they have this very sort of like punk notion of of sampling and uh, we're really playing around with like what is plagiarism what is homage and over time you know their work starts out as like very clunky almost like really big obvious lifted samples and then over time as they became like a, a actual pop act it's still very chaotic and like there's a lot going on but it's like instead of so much like these samples it's like they have created not like samples but they're doing like a sort of an actual like big budget fleshed out sort of parody of a genre or of a certain sound and it's like more integrated Mm -hmm. as a sort of genre parody and not this kind of collage so much and i think that's almost kind of what happens in the transition between demon lover and boarding gate is everything is just sort of woven together more and becomes more seamless and it's not this like oh this this obvious sort of uh like meta material collage piece um and also the the movie ends with another like 
I think very sort of tongue in cheek art pop band Sparks. It ends with like a club remix of their song, the number one song in heaven. And I mean, they're not like collage artists in that way, but they have a sort of played a lot with like very capital P pop sounds and like an intentional, ironic pastiche kind of way and do the same thing with their lyrics sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. It feels like those are sort of like gestures almost that like the kind of thing he's trying to do where it's like art pop, I guess, basically because that's what both of the songs are yeah. it's art pop like i mean i think that's interesting to bring up though specifically the spark song because that reminds me of another action movie set in hong kong about counterfeits that ends with a spark song which is knockoff the suhark movie with jean-claude van damme and rob schneider yeah i mean that's no i think that's such a great movie to bring up because i think a troy hark is a filmmaker that like azios is probably a fan of and familiar with and like, I also feel like, and I don't know, particular, I don't just Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, I think Jean-Claude Van Damme even gets mentioned like in Irma Vep in that like interview I was talking about earlier where like the critic is interviewing the director. But there's also this literally a spark song with Choi Hark called Choi Hark, where he's like, I'm Choi Hark. I'm a film director. I've made lots of films. And then he just like lists his movies. And that's the song. <laughs> Really? Also, I didn't know that's how his name was pronounced. I think this is the first time I've said it out loud. I was like not sure how to say it for a very long time. They did original music for that movie knockoff and had this song at the end that's like, I bought this song in Hong Kong. <laughs> it's a knockoff. Well, that's it's like around the same era as that that song they did with Troy Hark, which was off of their album, um, Gratuitous Sax and Senseless Violins. You know, they had experimented a lot with synth pop and dance music before, but this is like very overtly like Euro dance, a very kind of commercial sound. And they even had like added a third member to their band playing like the drum machine, who was this like featured extra on Star Trek The Next Generation, just some like random actress, um, which, you know, it's, it felt like they cast her in the band. Band, honestly, which feels sort of fitting for this discussion. But there's this, another song on that album called Now That I Own the BBC. And it's just, you know, from the point of view of some infinitely wealthy person who has purchased the BBC and they're like, now that I own the BBC, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, uh, you know, what am I? I own it. What do I do with it? And so much, you know, Demon Lover, I feel like is like that kind of movie almost where it's like at the executive level. It's about ownership and boarding gate and also knockoff are set at this sort of like nitty gritty level of commercial production and i think it's interesting because i mean obviously like knockoff like is a hollywood action movie in a way boarding gate mm-hmm. is certifiably not but i also think that Choi hart just being this outsider to hollywood he's able to make something that's like maybe more reflective on like you know because like because all genre movies are knockoffs or counterfeits at some point so to make an action movie with a headlining action star that's called knockoff, I think is just like is pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a great movie and it really investigates that that border of artificiality and organicness because lots of the action set pieces like choreographically the exact same as a lot of other action movies. But here they're just like, you know, you're busting into crates of fruit or exploding crates of baby dolls that are like undecorated mm-hmm. and they feel like unfinished, like stand in like oh. objects to get changed later or something like that all the products mm-hmm. love it but then also you know there's a lot of with any kind of you know movie about government intrigue and you know espionage and terrorism there's the classic there's the double agent the triple agent all kinds of knockoffs damn the layers of deception yeah. 
the masks. I only got interested in watching that, though, because the name is just, like, too crazy. Just knockoff. Yeah, it's also, like, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, like, the Just Cause games in a little bit, like, of a way <laughs> where it's, like, you could say it Just Cause or Just Cause because you can do anything yeah. Just Cause. Uh, not, you know. It answers the question. It's, like, it's a knockoff. But also, hey, knock it off. Quit messing around. Somebody gets knocked Damn. off. That's like the dual meaning that I thought when I heard it for the first time. But yeah. Damn, knocking heads off. I mean, I think that's all I have to say about Demon Lover in this kind of trilogy of movies. I don't know. My opinion on Demon Lover, did the movie change? Did I change? Who's to say? I don't know. The internet's yeah. always changing. That's for sure. I'm sure that domain name has expired, yeah. demonlover.com. I didn't even think to check. I'm sure it's probably, I don't actually know if I want to type that in because I feel like yeah, just the words demon lover. What a title. That's just a crazy title. One for demon lover, please. <laughs> I'm just a regular old demon lover. I just love them. Yeah. Can't get enough of those demons. Uh, but yeah, I think we can log off. We can exit yeah. the the gate. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Demon Lover is is you know you can go rent that sucker if you want. Yeah, you can. This the new two K. Yeah, it's out there. Restoration, but maybe in the spirit of the movie, you could also find it elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you could find a shitty camera or something that seems mm-hmm. very in the spirit of it on a on a Russian site with a lot of pop ups, preferably. Just make this viewing experience the most difficult and uncomfortable for yourself as possible. Like maybe don't like minim- just keep it minimized. Don't open it on full screen and like keep the porn banner ads going. That's mm-hmm. just the way it's meant to be seen. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, do we have any like future content to plug? Anything to look forward to that we feel confident in enough to start talking about? I mean, I, f- I feel like our next episode will probably be our mind virus episode but i know that will at least be coming soon if not the next one yeah kind of you know tangential to what we talked about with the bye bye man but you know we saw that and then we just kept like following you know we went down the rabbit hole to see how far it went we kept thinking it we kept saying it Mm -hmm. and we saw some more movies that inspired a lot of related thoughts uh, some new films it is not about adam curtis it's no it's so funny though that it was originally like it has uh, mutated quite a bit this idea because originally it was like going to be a like Sundance episode because like two of the movies that we watched for it were like opened at Sundance and it was Mm -hmm. just going to be a more topical thing of like hey look at these movies that are interesting to talk about but uh, then I saw a little film called The Empty Man and let me tell you that filled my mind up right to the brim with ideas Uh, not empty at all and it felt very related to what we've been thinking about already. And it just kept going from there. So mm-hmm. should be a good one. I think it should be a classic hot box. You know, just a quintessential episode hitting all the all the points in the way that, you know, some episodes only hit a few. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, sometimes you can't hit every point. Sometimes it's more of a node than a network. This one, we're mm-hmm. just going all in. The room yeah. is going to be filled with smoke. So... And mirrors. Yes. Wow. Smoke and mirrors. Just more more layers of illusion and deception. Yeah. And mystery. Uh, but, you know, until then, keep it, uh, 
keep it logged to the Twitter page. I don't know. That's, you know, posted memes. We do since the last episode, or did we promote it on the last episode, the Instagram? No, we had the Instagram on the last episode, but I have posted a number of times since then. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty fun. You know, it's just some some memes and some shit posts. You just get on there. You just, and some funny stuff to look at. away. It's great. When he was making Demon Lover, Olivia Asias was like, man, there's some fucked up shit on the internet. But with the Hotbox of Cinema Instagram, we say, hey, there's some funny shit yeah. on the internet. Well, instead of instead of just armchair critique, we get in there and we make change. Yeah, we're not just we're not making a movie to critique the internet. We're going on the internet to change the internet and make it a better mm-hmm. place. That's yeah. true. That's what I say. So, you know, usernames on both Hotbox the Cinema. Uh, you can find the two of us on Twitter, Nathan at Tremor Girls, me at ASAP Sunscreen. Yeah, and then, you know, this this sucker is, uh, as you know, because you're listening to it on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. You know, wherever fine audio goods are, are tendered and sold. Mm-hmm. Wherever you launder your podcasts. <laughs> Anyways, until then, keep on talking.
Sweat, touch my chest, my sweat. Should I do this? I'll shake my breast, my breast, my breast. 